Well, if you didn't get a chance before the service, I hope that um, when we're done, you take the opportunity to walk through that room back there. Uh, we've had a great, great team of people led by Marty McPhee and Didi Lominick working on that room uh, to really tell the story of this church. You know, Didi texted me on Friday and said, could you come over and look at this? And I was already on my way out the door actually to do exactly that. And so I had a chance to just kind of walk through that room and, and really to look mostly at that north wall and just to see that image of a tree and all of these different markers throughout the 75-year course of the history of this church. And, and I realized two things, but the, but the first of which is that God is writing a story that is Rio Vista Community Church, formerly known as Bethany Presbyterian Church, and that is also Bethany Christian School, which is our precious and amazing and incredible school, with which we are not two, but one entity. It's an amazing deal. And as we sang that last song, you know, I was thinking in the first service today, I thought, man, I wish that there was some way like to magically grab up all of the people who have sacrificed, all of the people who have served, all of the people who have given, all of the people who have prayed, all of the people who have worked over the course of the last 75 years to bring us to the place where we are right now and to just sort of transport them into the room and just kind of let them see. Let them see what's happened. Let them see how the Lord has used what they've done to bring us to where we are. Most of them, or at least a lot of them, are in heaven. Some of them are still here. And a few of them that we don't get to see very often are here now. And I don't want to give them a heart attack by calling on them and having them stand up. But I want to say it's, it's pretty cool, man. It's amazing. And we got the Hoxies sitting over here. I'll risk their heart. How long have you been here, Jack? 55 years. And Ruth before that with your folks. Yeah. Since 1947, her family has been a part of this church. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right, the danger about doing this is then I leave people out that I didn't see before the service. But June Wessel is here too. June has been here, I think, since the 50s at some point. She was a teacher in our school. She used to live in a house across the street that I wish we owned. I'm not going to lie. Right next to the school. Maybe we did once. I don't know. If we did, don't tell me. It'll just crush me, June. So. But it's a privilege to have her here. She and her late husband, Gary, were, were and are still a part of, of who we are. Uh, we have Helen Coltrane here. And Helen, you're sitting approximately where you and Charlie always sat together. So I see you there. And, uh, and her late husband, Charlie, these guys are a part of the heart and soul of this church. And I don't know if I can get through this part, but <clears throat> when I became the pastor of this church 15 years ago, I had never been the pastor of anything. So just know that. I don't know what these guys were thinking. They must have been out of their minds. <laughs> but I remember Charlie and he was nearing the end of his life and he knew that. Pulled me aside and he was a fun guy. I mean, funny, gifted, talented. You know, when I think of the definition of a lady in my dictionary, when I look that word up, I have Helen. When I think of just a, a powerful, dynamic, godly follower of Christ, I think Charlie. He's an amazing guy. He would hold court in the fellowship hall week after week because it's just like this buzz of people around him and he would stand there with his walker in the end and they would just, we'd all huddle around and, and talk with him. But I remember he took me by the hands and he looked me in the eyes and with tears in his eyes, he said, Tom, he said, I, he goes, this place is going to be great. He said, I just wish that I could be alive to see it. And that was like life to a scared 37-year-old kid.
kid who had never done this before. So I don't know if I've ever shared that with you, but uh, that was really life-giving to me because I so admired this man. Um, we stand, guys, in a long line of amazing, incredible people who have given much to give us what we have. So that was part of what impressed me. The other part of what impressed me is simply this. Right now is our time. It's our time. It's our time to pray. It is our time to work. It's our time to run while we have strength. It is our time to spend ourselves in every way that we can for the sake of God's kingdom through this church and through this school and through whatever else God calls you to do in this community and in the world. It's our time to take up the mantle of leadership that these guys have given to us and it is our privilege to have it. And by the power of God's Spirit, because trust me, that's the only way this happens, in obedience to His Word and in community with one another, to pass it on better than we found it so that others can take it and move it forward when our day is done. But now is our day. So know that. To that end, we're going to continue our study of this book of 2 Corinthians that we've been making our way through. But before we move on, I want to go back to last week. And I want to remind you of what the big idea was. So the big idea last week is this. It is that the hard words of the Bible, the difficult words of the Bible, to be perfectly plain, the words in the Bible that we all know are there and that we don't want to hear about, man, they're the most needful words. They are the most helpful words. They are the most important words. Why? Because they come to us and condemn us. Because they come to us and clothe us with shame and with guilt. Because they come to us and, and speak to us about how crummy we are. And about No, no, no. That's not how the Bible works. Because they come to us like the Gospel itself. And they speak a hard word to us that they might free us from the very things that are enslaving us. That's it. God does not come to take he is infinitely valuable. He is infinitely full. He is infinitely wealthy. Like exactly what does God need? Make a list. It's going to be short. There's nothing on it. He comes to give. That's who He is. And the reason that that was our topic last week is simply because of the dynamic between the Apostle Paul and this church in Corinth that he planted. And so just to rehearse that a little bit, as you'll recall, Paul wrote not two letters, but at least three to this church. He wrote 1 Corinthians. We've studied that. He wrote 2 Corinthians. We're studying that. But in between, he wrote another letter that we don't have. And he calls it his painful letter. Now, why is it his painful letter? Because in it, he delivered a hard word to this congregation. Why? Because he wanted to oppress them. He wanted to put them down. He wanted to make them feel guilty. He wanted to shame them. He wa no. Because he wanted to see them repent and turn and find that which is truly life. They were lost in idolatry and they were unwilling to change. And he wrote this hard word to them and called them out of this. And what is repentance? Because we talked about it. Here's what repentance is not. It's I feel bad about this. I know I shouldn't be doing this. I don't like the fact that I'm lost in this, but I'm going to continue. That's not it. Repentance is a turning. I am turning by the power of God's Spirit away from this. And, and in community with my brothers and sisters, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm going to fall down from now, now and again. And that's why I need help to get up and to keep moving. But, but I'm reorienting myself away from that which has enslaved me. And I am walking forward in freedom 
in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote the letter for that reason, but he knew that it would be painful for them to hear it. And listen, it was painful for him too because he wrote the letter and he placed it in the hands of one of his lieutenants, this, this guy named Titus. And Titus took the letter to the church in Corinth and he delivered it there. Meanwhile, Paul goes off to Macedonia and all the while he's waiting for Titus to come back to tell him, how did they receive it? Because here's what they could have done. They could have said, we reject your word, which is to reject the Lord. It is to reject Paul. It's to reject God's word. But that's not what they did. Thankfully, Titus came and much to the relief and to the joy of the Apostle Paul, he said, hey, you know what? The hard word, they humbled themselves before it. Instead of saying, ah, I think I know better than the Lord. They said, no, I I think maybe... I don't know, since he's omniscient and everything. He knows better than me. And they have repented and they have turned and they are now walking again in life and and newness and all of these things. And Paul is overwhelmed with joy. So then Paul sits down at his desk and he whips out a pad of paper and a pen. And that's when he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians that we're in the middle of studying. And he took this letter and he put it also in the hand of Titus and said, you did a good job the last time, so take this letter back to these guys. And that's exactly what he did. But he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, which contains all kinds of stuff that we've been looking at, primarily, however, for this purpose, to encourage generosity in those people, in that church, in Corinth. One of the things that Paul was involved in is he was involved in a collection, and it was a financial collection, and he was taking it up, not just from these guys in Corinth, but from all of these different churches that he had planted. And he was taking it up for the benefit, not of all of these different churches, but for the benefit of the mother church and the Christians at that mother church in the city of Jerusalem, from which Christianity exploded and went out. Why, though? Why were they in need of resources? They were in need of resources because of persecution. It was not popular to be a follower of Jesus in the city that crucified Jesus. I mean, that's pretty simple math, isn't it? And when you came out as a follower of Jesus in that city in that day, you lost your family, you lost your friends, and most of the people who used to do business with you, yeah, not so much anymore. And so they were suffering great poverty. And when Paul heard about this, he said to all of these churches that he planted, guys, we've got to help these guys out. We need to come to their aid. We need to help them. And so as we get to this part of the letter, okay, that's where he takes up this topic. That's where he begins to encourage these Corinthians. And what I want you to see in this is how he encourages these Corinthians. Like, what is his motive? Like, how does he come to them and argue for why it is that they should help these people and help them to the greatest degree possible? But what I want you to know before we look at that is that I really believe that God chose this passage of Scripture for this day. And here's why I can say that with complete impunity. Because I plan out my sermon series like 8, 10, 12 months in advance. The whole year is planned before it begins by about three months before it begins, typically. And I did it, and I shouldn't admit this, so keep this to yourself, okay? I did it without even realizing this was our 75th year, anniversary year, and and certainly without realizing that it would be in October, and certainly without realizing that it was on October 19, which was this past Wednesday. 
And so until Matt came to me three, four months ago, and he said, hey, man, this is our 75th anniversary year, and we need to celebrate it, make a big deal. We want to do this in the fellowship hall. And, you know, and I was like, great, we absolutely need to do this. He said, what are you preaching on? I said, I have no idea. I'm somewhere in 2 Corinthians. That's it. That's all I got. Hopefully, it's not sexual immorality. Because <laughs> we've talked about that. It's 2 Corinthians 8. And I'll tell you, I don't think there could be a more appropriate topic. In case you've missed it, here's what the gospel does. It doesn't claim a little bit of you. It claims your all. Period. Everything. The God who created you, who gave you being and gave you life, the God who gave you all of your time, who numbers out your days and heartbeats and breaths, the God who invested all of your abilities and all of these things, He placed them on loan, He gave them and entrusted them to you, the God who has given you everything that you are and everything that you have, and then after you took everything that you are and everything that you have, and like me, lived for yourself as if you were God, who then, in the person of His Son, entered into this world to lay down His infinite valuable, infinitely righteous life to buy you back out of sin and death. Okay, that God owns it all. He claims it all. He takes it all. And that is not bad. That's good. He doesn't take it because He needs it. He takes it that He might breathe life into it, meaning into it, purpose into it, mission into it, vision into it, that He might use you to do things that matter for the rest of your life, and then that matter way beyond your life. What these people did 75 years ago matters big time to me and to my family, and I suspect to yours. And because people have eternal souls, look, all gospel ministry matters forever. Give me the list of other things that matter forever. That list is non-existent too. So the gospel demands our everything. And I want you to know that I think that the Lord chose this passage of Scripture for us. And here's the other thing that I want you to know. I want you to know that our vision too is to be a mother church. That's it. And if you were here back when we rolled out the mustard seed campaign in the spring, you know that that's what we talked about. We said our vision is not to try to go out and find a bigger piece of land like that actually exists somewhere on the east side of Fort Lauderdale and then to buy it like we could do that. And then after that, to build bigger buildings so that we could accommodate the growth of our church and of our school. We said, listen, we really believe that that's great for other churches and maybe that's somebody else's vision and that's fine. But we think we're where we're supposed to be as a church and as a school. And what we want to do is recognize, man, you know what? This is our part of the story, and we want to do what we need to do from a ministry perspective and a facilities perspective to build the strongest platform for ministry that we might build the strongest, most powerful church and school right here where we're at and then grow by sending off people and resources and planting other churches in this community, thereby creating space to grow within our own walls and hopefully leaving behind many enduring works in the form of other churches that share our passions and that share our heart. So then as we look at this story that the Lord, or this word that the Lord has chosen for us today, I want you to see how Paul encourages them to generosity. And then here's what I'd like you to be. I'd like you to be encouraged in your own generosity of your time, of your talents, of your treasure, of the way that you give and serve and all of these other things. I want you to be encouraged in that 
because if you missed it, this is, this is our part of the story. And, and then also, that's what the gospel does. The gospel makes us generous, guys. Unless we take these aspects of our lives and we shelter them from the Lord, the gospel makes us generous if we say, oh, wait a minute, so you're the omniscient mind. You might have a better plan for me than my plan. All right, Lord, speak for your servant listens. That's what I'm praying He does. So we pick up our study in 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, meaning you brothers in the city of Corinth, about the what? Because it's a gospel word. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among whom? Not yet amongst these people at this church in Corinth, but very much so amongst all of these other churches in Macedonia that Paul has been at. That's where he's at when he writes the letter. He said, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia that just like the church in Corinth, Paul had also planted. And so then what's the evidence of the grace of God? In other words, what has the gospel produced in these churches in Macedonia that Paul is longing through the example of these guys to inspire in the Corinthians? He continues, he says, for in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed, here it is, in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave financially to this special collection for the saints at the Mother Church of Jerusalem according to their means, as I can testify, in fact, he says, and beyond their means and of their own accord. Listen to this now. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, which it seems to me ought to always be. Must it not necessarily be the first step? I mean, it's, there's something to recognizing, okay, my being, my, my existence, my redemption, my everything has come from the Lord and He's, he's given it to me. What am I going to do with it in this little window called life? And it's a little window. It's much smaller than you think. And the older you get, the more accurately you see its size. He says, this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God, they gave themselves also to us is the idea in regards to this collection. And now what does Paul do with their example? Because we're looking for how he encourages these guys to do likewise. He says, accordingly, we urge Titus, who again had delivered the painful letter. Paul's off going, how are they going to receive it? Well, we urge Titus that as he had started with you guys in Corinth when he delivered the painful letter and realized, hey, they repented and this is good. So he brought this up then. So he should now, because now he's coming back with this new letter, he should now complete among you what? This same kind of act of grace. He's saying, look, guys, here's the deal. Look at what the gospel produced in the impoverished Macedonians. And here's the deal, the Corinthians had much more. They were not at all impoverished. I mean, I'm sure they had some, but as a rule, that was not the case for them. He's going, come on, look, 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 look. Might this produce this in you as well? This is what the gospel produces. It makes us 
generous when we allow it to touch this area of our lives. And I don't think that's what had happened with these guys. But Paul is clear that the gospel was at work among them because what he does is he gives now this list of other things that the gospel produces and effectively says, add this one to it. So he goes on, he says, but as you Corinthians excel in everything, and here comes the list, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, he throws in, good job, Paul. Okay, well then, he says, see to it that you excel in this act of the grace of generosity is the point. Also, but why? Because that's also what the gospel produces. But only if like those poor Macedonians, who if you think about it, had a lot more reason to say, oh no, man, I don't have much of this than the Corinthians did. Instead said, okay, Lord, you know, our safety is in you. Our security is in you. You provide what we important word, need. Speak for your servants listen. What do you want to do? And I'll tell you, over the years that I've been here, and it's been 15 years in this position, and I was here probably four years before that, there have been times where sort of like what the Apostle Paul is doing here, we've taken up a special collection. So six, seven years ago, as an example, we took up a special collection. We challenged our congregation, said, listen, we want to do something for homeless single moms, for, for women and their kids that are sleeping in their cars right now. We want to buy a fourplex. We want to renovate it. We want to make it called the Rio House. We're going to work with our partner here with homelessness, which is Hope South Florida, to help these ladies. And this congregation responded overwhelmingly, really, like we had an abundance more than we needed needed. It was amazing. And for the last six years or so, that house has been housing those ladies and their kids ever since, including right now, for them in there with all of their kids. Two years ago, this coming November, next month, I think it was, I, it's, this has burned on my memory because it, it scarred me as an individual. We did a haircut fundraising challenge. Do you remember that? <laughs> Helen, I'm glad you missed this. It was embarrassing. It was but we came to this congregation and we said, listen, the elderly in Haiti are the most vulnerable segment of their society for obvious reasons. If you have to choose between feeding your kids or your parents, that's a hard choice. But you go with the kids with the support of your parents, don't you? And that's how it works. And so the government of Haiti had come to our missions partner there, Mission of Hope, and said, would you guys take on this idea of, all right, can we build a, a first of its kind in partnership with the government, at least elderly care facility here in Haiti? And, and the Mission of Hope came to us and said, listen, anybody can get excited about kids for obvious and very excellent reasons, but what about the elderly? Would you guys be willing to do it? And we said, you know what? We'll do it. Let's do it. Let's do this thing. And so we came to you and we said, all right, it's a gimmick, but it worked, so we're not above this. If we raise this much money, these guys on our staff will cut their hair, you know? I mean, like to three-eighths of an inch. I mean, gone is what I'm saying, okay? All right, so then if we raise this much, you know, then, then the rest, some of these guys will cut their hair. Then Carter Brown was here, and he had hair down to like his rear end, you know, at the time. And I'm not against, for the record, long hair on men, but on him it looked tragic. It was really, it was not, it was not I gave money for this reason, but... If, if, if we hit this number, Carter will cut his hair off, you know, and then if we hit this number, and I'm playing, oh, Jesus, no, then Tom will cut his hair off. And uh, it's a very convenient haircut. So I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's, uh, you guys crushed the number. And now the facility stands and it's, uh, it's operational. 
We've done the Mustard Seed campaign this year. Help us build the platform to launch for the next 75 years a better platform for ministry as a church and as a school. And here, here's my point. Every time we've done something like this, we, we get pledges that say something like this. And I don't see the pledges for the right. Like, unless you come to me and hand me the check or the pledge, or you call me and we talk about it, I don't know what anybody gives here by design. And by that, I mean my design, okay? But I'm told about these. So the people in our accounting department who are so moved by stuff like this will come and say, you know, we we got this pledge for, let's say, the mustard seed campaign. And here's what it says. For the next three years, I pledge to give $38.46 per month. Now stop and think about that for a minute. What does that tell you? It tells you that that precious person or that that precious family is probably at least not giving out of an abundance of wealth, does it not? And here's the other thing, because you're thinking, why not just 40 bucks or why not 35? Or why is it $38.40? Because they have sat down and so seriously taken this that they have combed through their dollars and quarters and dimes and nickels and pennies and literally said, this is as much as we can squeak out. And it's our privilege to give it. That's the most inspiring kind of gift for me. It really is. It's amazing. It's exactly what Paul's doing. He's going, hey, Corinthians, check these guys out. They're giving $38.46 a month. What will the gospel produce through you? Then he continues in verse 8, and he says, I say this not as a command, and I, I want to stop there because I think that's important. It, it's not a command. Now, why is it not a command? Because what he's talking about in this special collection that he's taking is not the ordinary tithes and offerings. He's talking about a special collection. So at Rio, just to kind of help people understand these things, we talk about level 2 giving. What is that? Well, it's a over and above level 1 giving, is it not? And those are the tithes, and those are the offerings. And for the record, that is commanded. And I want you to listen to what the Lord says about that. What Paul's talking about with the special collection is something we call level two giving. That's over and above level one giving. That's the tithe. And the tithe is commanded. Why? Because he, God wants to make us feel bad, right? Is that, I mean, that's it. He's looking to clothe us in shame. He, he wants to take from us because he needs something. Is that it? It's not it. But listen to what he says, and listen to the language he uses, and just remember this is his message, it's not mine. The word of the Lord, okay? He says, will man rob God? So like out of the gate, he comes with the language of thievery. That's like, you're like, come on. What is he saying? He's saying this 100% belongs to me, but this, this is absolutely mine. He continues, he says, will a man rob God? Yeah, yet he says, you're robbing me. And then he puts into our mouths the words that we all want to say. He asks and answers our question. He says, but you say, how have we robbed you? Here's the answer. In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. He says, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then here comes the command. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. That is to say that there may be an abundance from which to do ministry to one another, but to the foreigner, to the stranger, to the widow, to the orphan, to the poor, to the hungry, to the homeless. Just run down the list. 
And in doing this, he says, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. God's going, come on, come on, it's okay. You can test me in this. This is, this is awesome. And then now listen to the promise because it's amazing. He says, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven, key phrase, for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I, I didn't realize until really yesterday, actually, that that's the same language that is used in Genesis chapter 7 of the flood. God opened the windows of heaven, you remember, and he poured down and the flood is overwhelming. That's the idea there in judgment, but here in blessing. And does that mean that, you know, if you give $50, the Lord is going to give you 5000 <laughs> I don't think that's at all what he's talking about here, though I will tell you from personal experience that again and again and again and again I have seen the Lord pay for things for us that we could not afford but we could afford if we weren't doing this and as a result what does that do for your faith it's amazing it's like wait a minute so you exist yes we'll start with that you know where I'm at in my condition and what I need and, and what's happening in my life and, and you're sensitive to my needs. Yes. Guys, it's a blessing. It's amazing. And if all we knew about this passage on tithing was that last little bit, you know, about the windows of heaven and all that, we'd be like, listen, I don't even know what the first part says, but count me in because I'm all about those windows of heaven and the pouring out. And, the, and then we find out what it is and it's like, oh, good grief, it had to be that. And it did have to be that. Why did it have to be that? Because God wants your money. That's it. That's the answer. Is that the answer? No. God's up there trying to write his mortgage. Good grief. I wish so-and-so would tithe. No. He wants your heart. And here's what he knows about my heart and yours and everybody else on the planet. It's the human condition. Jesus says it best. Where your treasure is, okay, there your heart will be also. So he commands us regularly to tithe, but then he comes to us from time to time after that, and he says, hey, you know, there's this other really cool thing. I'd like you to be a part of that, perhaps. But that's not commanded. Again, verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, and you say, all right, well, then what is it? It's a test, actually. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, meaning these Macedonians, that your love for God, for His purposes, for His mission, for His people in Jerusalem in this case, also is genuine. And just to be sure that we don't miss the fact that it is the gospel that engenders this love, that therefore then breaks forth in this kind of generosity that begs to be a part of something. He gives us a different example. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that is to say that though he was the king of heaven, enjoying all of its wealth and all of its delights, did what? Yet for your sake. Now take that to heart if you're a believer. This is you, yet for your sake. What did he do? Through a supernatural conception, he clothed himself in our humanity, real flesh and blood like us. He entered into this world as one of us and became truly poor in every possible way. And here's why. So that you by his poverty, that is to say through your faith in his life and his humiliations and his sufferings, death, burial and resurrection might be saved from what? From your own self-worship, from your own sin from all the stuff that we ourselves have brought upon ourselves. 
we might become rich as sons and daughters of Almighty God. And so in other words, Paul's going, okay, listen, if the generosity of the impoverished Macedonians didn't move you, then let me show you the generosity of your Lord and Savior. Does that move you? Because if that doesn't move you, there's no more persuasive argument. There's like no other greater example or illustration that we can come along with. No, that's it. That tops all. And so then he concludes that in this matter of generosity, Paul says, I will now give my judgment. And here's his judgment. He says, this benefits you, who a year ago, in their case, he said, started not only to do this work, to take the collection, but also, and this is the key, to desire to do it not begrudgingly and so forth, as he'll go on later to explain. So now he says, finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what? Out of what you borrow, out of what you hope, maybe some crazy investment will bring. No, out of what you have. It's very practical. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable to give according to what a person has, not according to to what a person doesn't have. And here's the deal. I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that these Corinthians did exactly what Paul is encouraging them to do because the Spirit was obviously at work. I mean, they had manifested every other kind of gift. And he's saying, yep, how about this one? Guys, the gospel makes us generous. But only if we humble ourselves before it authentically and say, all right, I'm yours, everything, everything, okay? What is your word to me, Lord? So I'm going to close with this. I want to ask you, are you generous with your time? Because generosity is a full life thing. And that's measured out and entrusted to us too. Are you generous with your talents, your abilities, your gifts, your energies? Your, I mean, all of these things that you use to advance all kinds of things. Are you using and employing them to advance God's kingdom? If, if you have great ability to work with kids, are you working with kids, for example? I mean, there are a lot of opportunities and then lastly, of course, since it's the point of this passage, are you generous with your treasure? Are you a level one giver? That's commanded in case you missed it. Are you a level two giver? In other words, when it's the Rio house or it's the Grace Home or it's the Mustard Seed campaign, which Matt's going to come up in a second and give us a report on so we know how we're doing on this platform for the next 75 years. Are you generous in that regard? Because guys, this is our time in the story. This is it. So one last challenge in case you aren't challenged enough, which, you know, I'd be shocked, but might you consider being generous with which church service you come to? So here's why I say that. If we're going to have a sustainable Saturday night service, that authentically provides a worship service for those who can't come on Sunday for whatever reason. And that also is strategically tied to our ability to grow within our own walls, hopefully for obvious reasons. We need people who come on Sunday to give Saturday a shot, a sustained shot, like for a while. And that's not going to be everybody. I get that. I totally understand that. And if all of you show up next Saturday night, I will be happy and very sad all at the same time. We'll have reversed our issues, you know, and that would not be cool. And we wouldn't fit. But um, but if you can do that, I think that would be very helpful. Okay, so here's the deal. Gospel makes us generous. It's a hard word, and it's a good word. What is it producing in you? Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your generosity to us, the generosity that we find in your Son. Uh, Lord, there is no greater example of generosity than he. But we thank you too for the generosity of the people that you have raised up and into whose hearts you have placed a vision for this city and for the world over the course of the last 75 years, the people on whose shoulders we stand, many of which we do not even know, but we will know, the people who have handed this ministry off to us in this season of the life and of the history and of the story that you're writing, which is Rio Vista Community Church and Bethany Christian School. Lord, we praise you for what you've done in and through them, some of whom are here today. And we pray that you might inspire like sacrifice, like faithfulness, like generosity on our part. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.